KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. When we just draft him, that alone is, becomes a really satisfying moment. And then just any success that he has moving forward, I don't care if I look up in the middle of July and that guy went three for five, there's satisfaction to it. That team that he's on has success and they win a championship at the minor league level, you find satisfaction in that. And then obviously the biggest moment is when those guys get caught to the big leagues. And our guest this week is Casey Fay, the Director of Baseball Development for the Appalachian League. He is a South Jersey native, actually from my hometown of Clayton. He was a star baseball player uh, in the area, went to Delaware, still holds stolen base records there. Casey, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having me. I'm really looking forward to being on with you today. So let's start with what you're doing now, Director of Baseball Development for the Appy League. Uh, What goes into it? What's the job all about? So the Appalachian League was um, uh, one of the short season minor leagues. And when, when they contracted Major League Baseball, kind of took it over and turned it into a college summer league. So we're completely funded and run through Major League Baseball. Uh, so my day to day is basically overseeing all of the baseball operations that go into running a college summer league. So mainly is player evaluations and player acquisitions, making sure we have we have 10 teams in the league, making sure they're filled with really good players across the country. Our focus in the Appy League is on freshmen and sophomores. So we really focus on development for younger players in college baseball. And we really try to get them to the next step of their career, whether it's, you know, really impacting the uh, program that they're at, getting to the Cape Cod League the following year and getting them ready for the Major League Baseball draft. Um, So everything that goes into the baseball operations side of things, it kind of falls under my purview. The players being the big part of that and then obviously the coaching staffs and developing uh, plans to, like I said, help get those players better in the best possible way and then overseeing everything in those aspects. What is a... a and I'm sure there isn't a quote unquote typical day, but you know, what are some things you deal with on a day to day basis? Great question. Uh, Cause it definitely depends on the time of year. So right now our season actually opens today. Um, so probably the past four days I've been attached to my phone, just making phone calls, text messages, and uh, trying to deal with player turnover. You know, it comes to the end of the college season. A lot of guys will shut their pitchers down or guys get hurt or feel like they need to take the summer off. So then we got to quickly turn that around and replace those guys, uh, which isn't easy. So it's a nonstop battle trying to make sure that 10 rosters with 34 players each are filled. Um, and not only just filled, but filled with like the right guys, the, the ones that we want to have in the Appalachian League that we feel are going to be good baseball players and could be good prospects kind of moving forward. So that's probably the bulk of my hours spent right now is just ensuring that those rosters are filled and we have um, guys to be able to go out and compete uh, every night down there. Um, And then it kind of, like I said, comes in waves. When we get into the off season, things can kind of slow down a little bit. It's more administrative stuff. We do a lot with coaching development as well. This past off season, I think we had like six or seven zoom calls with all of our coaches um, we've brought different people on to speak with them just about their background, their experiences in, in baseball. Um, Mike Schilt, former manager of the Cardinals, is a big part of our uh, staff and what we do. He's been great helping develop our guys. Raul Labanez, former Philadelphia Philly, has been on a bunch. Uh, just an incredible human being and so easy going. Uh, he's been great dealing with our guys. Rusty Kuntz, um, former Major League first base coach, probably one of the best in the business, came on and was talking about coaching first base with our guys. So a lot of different things like that we were able to do um, to be able to help develop our our younger coaches and even for our our veteran coaches, kind of 
give them some some new experiences, some new information when it comes to technology, data, et cetera. So it's a lot of those different things that can kind of come in waves uh, that we're able to do to help our not only our players, but our coaches get better throughout the year. So prior to your current position, you had, I think it was 13 years as a scout in the Royals organization. Were you looking for a different challenge or did it just kind of the opportunity kind of present itself and you, you just thought it was a good fit and a good next step? Yeah, I think it was definitely uh, more of the latter. Uh, I loved what I was doing. I loved being with the Royals, first-class organization, great uh, place to work. Um, and this opportunity just kind of came out of nowhere and presented itself. And I think to your first point about looking for new, I think we're always looking for new challenges in some regard or some aspects. Um, so then when something completely comes out of nowhere that you see it, you know, and it hits you in the face, what a different opportunity and challenge it can be, especially for anybody that's competitive person like I am, uh, you immediately start to gravitate towards it and, and think that's a good idea to to get on board. So yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere. Good friend of mine, when I lived in the Carolinas, um, one of our minor league teams was in Burlington in the Appy League. Uh, he was the GM there and he um, actually went back and bought the team right before it transitioned to a college summer league. So he had called me in the fall and they were looking for ideas to improve the league. This is the second year that the Appy League uh, is going on with it being a college summer league anyway. And um, he just called for ideas about how to improve the league and what they can do. At the end of it, asked me if I had interest in actually doing this job um, and running the baseball operations side of things. Um, so it kind of snowballed from there. And the more that I got into it, the more conversations I had, like you said, that that challenge really presented itself and it came more and more appealing and those competitive juices kick in to be able to make an impact. And uh, I decided to make the move and, and leave the role. So it's like, like I said, it wasn't easy. Uh, it's a great place. Uh, and basically worked with the same core of people for those 13 years. Um, JJ Piccolo, who's now the general manager, another South Jersey guy, got a chance to know him for a long time. Um, it was, was not an easy decision to to make, to walk away. But again, when you look kind of down the barrel of that challenge, it was something that was too tough to pass up at the time. So ended up making a decision and, and enjoying it so far. Well, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. I mentioned you're from the same town I am, Clayton. Uh, your brother, Kevin, was my age and actually uh, we played on soccer teams together and at least one bad baseball team together in Little League growing <laughs> up. Uh, you were a little younger, but I know sports was always really big with your family. Was baseball your first love? It's funny when you say love, of course I love the game, but even to this point, like growing up, it wasn't my first love. It just happened to be what I was the best at and what I was better than all the other sports. I loved playing basketball. Basketball was probably my first love to play, but I was just a fair basketball player, you know, below average or average high school player at best, but I loved doing it. Um, and baseball was just one of those things that I was the best at. So I think naturally you love the things that you're the best at because you know that you can do them well and you can compete and it's, you know, it brings a little bit more joy when you're winning and, and competing at a higher level. So I think when you just look at it on paper, yeah, I think basketball was my first love, but wasn't good enough to actually do anything with it. And baseball became uh, the natural progression for me. So um, then, like I said, that love starts to develop in different ways and for different reasons. And it's kind of where I'm at now that you, you love it without even realizing how much you love it and how much of a part of your life it's become and attached itself um, to you. So you play baseball growing up. You're playing in high school. You end up going to college. When do you start to realize, though, like in, you know, I would imagine junior high, high school, Gloucester Catholic, uh, that you might be able to take this further than than most 
kids because I think everyone dreams of playing college baseball, you know, but we're not good enough. But I would imagine there were some signs that, you know, well, I, I might be able to to take this further than most. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So for me, it was actually a longer process because I had two siblings that set a pretty high bar for me. My sister went and played softball at St. Joe's at Division One level. My brother played baseball at Drexel at the division one level. So it was almost like that was what I was going to do because I was either going to match or exceed what they did from an athletic standpoint. And I knew from an academic standpoint that I wasn't going to do that. They were both incredible students, very smart, very intelligent. Um, So I knew I wasn't going to do it from an academic uh, standpoint. So I had to do it from an athletic standpoint. So from the time that I was young, running around the field, watching them play, uh, watching my sister play, I was the bat boy for her um, travel teams in high school, all that kind of stuff. I was just always around the game. And to me, there was just always that natural assumption that I'm going to do exactly what they're doing or do it better. Um, so from a very young age, I kind of had a thought that that's what I was, that's the plan. Um, and not even because it's, it was like a big dream of mine. It was just because it was the reality. They were playing uh, baseball and softball at a high level in high school. They went on to do it in college. They were both good performers at those levels as well. So it was almost kind of like without even realizing it, it was a challenge at a younger age that I had to at least do that. And if not, I wasn't going to settle for anything, anything less. Um, you so ended yeah. up at, at Delaware. Uh, you went to Mason first, though, didn't you, George Mason? I did. Yeah. So out of high school, interesting story. Um, so J.J. Piccolo, again, how things come full circle. He was there. He was the assistant coach, recruiting coordinator at George Mason at the time. His mom was actually my English teacher in high school at Gloucester Catholic. And uh, I was kind of a, a late recruit. We had uh, didn't start having conversations probably until, gosh, May or so of my senior year, which nowadays it doesn't happen. Kids are committing when they're you know freshmen, sophomores in high school. It was a lot different back then with the recruiting process. So he recruited me to, to George Mason. I went there as a freshman. And uh, I did have a good experience there. I played a bunch as a freshman, um, but like most kids, when you're 18 years old, you think you have the world figured out um, and thought I had, you know, different ideas and ended up deciding to transfer uh, at the end of that year Uh, and ended up landing in a really good spot at the University of Delaware and having a great career. So it's funny when I look back on it, I love the decision that I made to transfer to Delaware. It worked out in the in the best possible situation, but there is a part of me that always looks back on my time at George Mason and wishes that I would have stayed for the full four years and kind of probably changed some things as a younger 18-year-old, made some different decisions and thought about things in a different way. But I can't complain because it worked out for the best possible way and uh, what I was able to do at Delaware and the experiences I've had and how it ended up kind of shaping my career moving forward uh, by being there. You hit over 300 at Delaware, and I think I mentioned in the open, great base stealer. Um, how much fun is when your game is based on base running? Because it's becoming more and more of a lost art. You don't see n- nearly as many people at a lot of levels trying to to steal bases. But I think you had 40 one year at Delaware, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we say 40 in a 40-ish game season. So... Uh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> how much fun did you have at that part of the game? You're obviously good at it, but how much did you kind of relish it? Yeah. So it was one of those things that growing up and it kind of did the opposite in basketball where, you know, always work, take like your weakest 
points of your game and try to like make them better. I always did that in basketball. I was a terrible shooter. So I always used to try to like work on shooting and get better at it and never could, where it was the opposite for me in baseball. I knew I could run. I knew base stealing was a big part of my game. I knew bunting was a big part of my game. So I always worked on that and tried to just continue to get better and better and better and become as, um, as what's the word I'm looking for as uh, proficient in both of those areas as possible. So I love that. I love studying opposing pitchers, knowing what guys were doing before they picked off, um, having a feel for their timing to the plate, having a feeling for my jumps, all those things that, that go into stealing a base, uh, which isn't as simple as just getting a lead and then, and then getting a good break and, and running and sliding. And there's a lot more of an art and a science that goes into it. So that part was always challenging on the front end. And then being able to kind of change the, the dynamic of the game and make an impact in that way was always more exciting too. You're on first base. Next thing you know, pitch or two later, you're in scoring position um, or you're, you're, you're stealing third base when, when teams aren't expecting it. So that was something that was always a lot more fun and exciting than hitting home runs, mainly because I couldn't hit home runs. I think I hit one in my college career. Um, so was that the way that I was able to impact the game and my, probably my favorite thing about it was you get on, whether it was a walk or a base hit, steal second, um, and then score a run and you look up at the scoreboard in the sixth inning and, and we got three runs as a team and you're responsible for scoring two of those runs because you were able to steal bases and put yourself in scoring position and give your chance or give your team a chance to put some runs up on the board so it was it was always a lot of fun it was for me the, definitely the most exciting part of my game other than obviously winning games uh, but just from an individual standpoint it was uh it was a lot of fun just studying pitchers, having a feel for who, who I could run off of, especially when you would kind of hear about guys coming in the games, catchers who have really good arms, strong arms. And then you look up at the end of the day, and you get two stolen bases off of those guys. Uh, I just loved it. And it was, again, going back to that competitive aspect, just one way that I can feel like I was contributing and, and making an impact to win games. When you think of your time at Delaware, you know, what are one or two memories that always come rising to the top when you think your time playing ball there definitely we got a chance to to win the conference my sophomore and junior year and go on and play in the ncaa regionals so i just think immediately my mind goes back to those two years winning those conference championships i can almost remember them vividly being on the field and you know jumping on the pile at the end of the day and um, a lot of the different aspects that went into that to that game so those two things stand out a ton to me. And then ironically, I remember breaking the single season stolen base record um, to like little or no fanfare. It was like one of those things that I, we were at Virginia Commonwealth. Um, I can't remember if I stole second base and it was like my 33rd um, stolen base of the season. And it was just like, I did it. I knew it. I think I was the only person in the ballpark. Maybe the SID uh, knew it as well, but that was it. And it was, to me, that was like a pretty cool moment because I just shared it with myself. And I remember getting back in the elevator after the game, there was a bunch of us on the elevator and somebody brought it up and was like, Hey man, didn't you just break the stolen dice record? I was like, yeah, I did. But it was something that I kind of kept to myself and, and knew it and, you know, wasn't trying to look for any type of fanfare about it. Uh, but I always kind of remember that as my own special moment. And then, like I said, from a team standpoint, winning two conference championships, getting a chance to go play in two exciting and, and fun regionals. Um, that was always kind of those, those memories that carry with me. And that's like the little things too, that you don't think about playing at East Carolina university, playing, you know, left field and center field at different times. And probably one of the most crazy atmospheres and you're out in left field and fans are screaming and yelling at you, calling you all kinds of names. And um, at one point our center fielder, we were going back for a ball and guy dumped a beer on him uh, at the fence, like stuff like that. It becomes uh, just odd, random memories that always stick with you. But yeah, those two championships and, and breaking that single season stolen base record. 
uh, was hold the most special, I would say. We need to take a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Casey Fay right after this. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with Casey Fay, a Gloucester Catholic and Delaware alum who's currently the Director of Baseball Development for the Appalachian League. So we t- I mentioned that you spent a lot of time as a scout, but after college, you, you start, you go into coaching. Um, was that always something that made sense for you that once your playing days were over, you wanted to, to coach or was it kind of a, you're done playing in college and you want to stay close to the game kind of, you know, what, what led you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Cause I always was always self-aware as a player. I knew my ceiling was going to be a pretty good college player and I wasn't a, a pro prospect, which after I got into scouting, I could put some definition to why I wasn't a pro prospect. Um, so for me, I did always be a part of the game, but I thought I was going to be like a high school teacher and coach high school baseball and basketball. So that's what I did my first year out. I went back and, and taught um, history at Delcy High School and then coached baseball, coached freshman basketball, which going back to that time when I was coaching freshman basketball at Delcy was one of the most fun years that I've had uh, as a coach. But the reality was I was a terrible teacher. I was awful. I was not a good teacher. Didn't like being in the classroom. Probably made a lot of my students dumber the entire time that I was there. Um, but in the, the year, needed, knew I needed to make a switch. So I ended up um, thinking that coaching could be a route. And at that time in 2000, whatever it was, three, the college coaching industry isn't what it is today. Um, so the, the amount of money that was being made to coaches, it, it wasn't something that people jumped right into as a career in the in the droves that they do now. So when I sat back and thought about it, I said, you know what, this could be a really good fit for me. And I started to figure out what the business side of it looked like. Um, and it was just a natural progression for me to want to do that. So I ended up going back to Delaware as the volunteer, which was my first um, coaching experience. If, if you're not familiar with how a coaching or baseball coaching staff looks like, you have a head coach, you have two paid assistants and a volunteer assistant. And the volunteer can't go out and recruit, can't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, but you can be on the field, obviously, every day. So I did that for a year um, back at Delaware, and it was a tremendous experience. Got a chance to work with uh, Coach Jim Sherman, who I played for there, and just learned a lot. Learned a lot about the industry itself and just how to see it from a different angle, from a coaching perspective. And then it kind of went on from there, uh, the different jobs I had and where my career went. But, um, yeah, so it wasn't a definite fit right out of the gate that I wanted to go be a you know a college baseball coach. I thought I was going to be a teacher. And, um, yeah, it didn't work out. And probably, thankfully, for a lot of students behind me, they're, they're glad that I made the transition out of teaching. How long did it take you, you know, coaching, scouting, you know, as a coach, once you get to a position where you are involved in the recruiting, you're kind of starting to sharpen the skill set that will help you as a scout. But from a coaching standpoint, how long do you think it took you to really find your pace as where you felt like you were, you know, you were really good at you were good at this? So it's a really good question, because um, I think it, in the moment you think that you have it all figured out. Right. And then every year that goes by, you look back at the year previously and realize that there's a million things that you're still learning and trying to figure out. So for me, I think I felt comfortable right away. Um, as soon as I got my first job, which was the following year at Siena College and I was out on the road recruiting, you can a couple little nuances, but you feel like you can do it right away. You can evaluate players and you can figure out who can play, who can't, who needs to be at your school, that kind of stuff. And then as you start to go, I think every probably a month, every year that goes by, you realize how much better you are 
at getting at it. And I think when I got to Temple, which would have been the 06, 07 year, probably hit my stride with combining the recruiting aspect and the player evaluation aspect to where I know what I'm looking at on the field. I know how it translates to that player being successful and how it's going to impact our program. But more importantly, the recruiting side of things, how can I translate that to the family? How can I sit down and talk with this player, talk with this family, convince them that the school that I'm at is the place that they want to be? Give them all the reasons of why they need to choose that that school, that university, um, and really sell that program. But at the same time, not oversell it to the point where you're begging players to show up. You're still looking and, and focusing on the right guys that are going to be a fit um, and still kind of reversing that interview process to where you're finding out, is this person going to be a good fit for, for our team? Is this going to be a, a good addition to our roster? And I think when you find that balance and you're not just scrambling and running around and trying to collect a talent and just find anybody that you think can play that's where the two two things really come together and you feel like you hit your your best stride uh in those those aspects and from there it just kind of continued to snowball that ability to communicate and sit down and talk with a family and be able to express the things that you can do to impact their their son's career and you know get them to the next level whether it is professional baseball or just to being a successful person uh, out in life. Um, and that's, to me was probably the most rewarding part too. When I became good at it on that end and I can translate it and I knew what I was talking about to those families and I could see it uh, in their expression and their appreciation for what they were getting ready to embark on. And when they would commit and be a part of our, our program, uh, then it became a really, really satisfying and enjoyable moment in my career when those two things could happen. We were talking a little bit off the air about, uh, you know how tough it can be for college baseball in the Northeast, frankly, just because of the calendar and the weather. You know, you mentioned Temple, your alma mater, Delaware, Siena. You know, these are all Northeast schools. And you talk about recruiting and being in living rooms. Was it tough if you would get involved with kids, you know, where, you know, schools out of the South or the Midwest where, you know, they're going to be able to practice outdoors in January, stuff like that? Uh, was that a difficult thing to try to to match up with those schools or were you able to find kids that really kind of fit where you weren't in competition for with stuff like that yeah it's um <clears throat> so a little bit of both uh, and i think the way that you go about your job is probably going to indicate the, re the results in that area so if you go and you're aggressive and you try to recruit a, a lot of players and you make a lot of contacts and have a lot of conversations that's going to happen where you're just going to get told no a lot. Guys are going to come out right out of the gate and you're focusing on some of the better players and they're going to have aspirations to go to a power five school or a bigger program, things along those lines. And you're going to get told no right up front where some guys won't even go down that road. They're going to look at that player and go, you know what? It's, it's not even worth the time. He's being recruited by this school in the ACC or that school in the ACC. And they don't even um, venture out to have those conversations. So for me, I was always pretty aggressive. So I didn't care if that kid was going to go to a big school. At least I made contact. At least I had a conversation. At least I felt like, you know, I did what I could to maybe change their mind. Maybe they wanted to stay close to home. Uh, maybe they wanted to go to more of an uh, academic school or something from a major perspective that they could have a, a temple that they weren't going to get at one of those other schools. Um, so that was the first part of it. And then the other part, when you just kind of continue to be aggressive and go out and find players in random spots, uh, don't turn any conversation away. If somebody calls and reaches out about a guy, you follow up and see, because maybe he is going to be a good fit. Maybe there's somebody that right now, this left-handed pitcher is 83 to 85, but he's athletic and his arm works. And you look at it and you go, you know what, we could sign this kid now. And in a year and a half from now, he's going to be 89 to 91, and he's going to be a, 
a really good weekend starter at our program. So you just, you, I think the effort level from a coaching standpoint will dictate a lot of those things. And the better that you are uh, at your job and, and the more aggressive you are, you're going to hit all those different parameters and you're going to get told no because a kid wants to go to the South or you're going to be told no because your facilities aren't um, what he's looking for. And, and some of the things, obviously, you can't do anything about the weather being the most important part. Um, but you know what? You have those conversations and you make that contact and maybe it doesn't work out at that school in the South. And he gives you a call the year later and he wants to come back and transfer and be closer to home. And all of a sudden he realized the weather wasn't as big of an issue because you're opening up and you're playing in the South or you have really good indoor facilities that can kind of make up with it. So I think every school has their own niche and able to compensate for lack of weather or lack of a big conference or whatever it may be. And you just have to find that and figure out what player fits and what player is going to be good and what player is going to make the biggest impact for your program. So you spent several years as an assistant coach at the college level was scouting something that started to appeal to you because of the skill set you were developing from a recruiting standpoint, uh, or was it just an opportunity that presented itself and at the, it was the right move at the right time? Yeah, definitely came out of nowhere and just presented itself. I did not have the expectations or the thought to go into professional baseball. Um, from my standpoint, I was a college player. I was a pretty good college player, but that's where, like I said earlier, my, I was self-aware. That's where my career ended. So to me, that's where I was going to be the best fit. Um, so going and coaching in professional baseball or being a part of professional baseball, it was always hard for me to be on the field thinking that I'm going to coach a lot of players at a level that I didn't get to. Um, so I would have the best and, and most success at the uh, at the college level. So I did, wasn't even thinking about scouting. I just knew that I wanted to coach and eventually become a college head coach at some point. And then, again, things come out of nowhere. I just got a phone call. I had left Temple, went down to Winthrop, um, to be the assistant coach there. And I think I was there for like 10 or 12 days when I got a phone call from JJ Piccolo. And uh, I just got on the phone because him and I had stayed in touch even after I transferred. He had left George Mason to take a job with the Braves at the time. And then I think in 06 went over to the Royals. So when he called, I just thought he was calling to catch up or ask me about something or whatever. And he just kind of said, hey, do you ever have an interest in scouting? And at that point I said, no, I'd never even thought about it. Like not even one bit. So we had a quick conversation on the phone and just kind of gave me some of the background of it and some of the ins and outs. And the more we talked and he's, he's incredible. I don't know if you know JJ well at all, but um, he's really good at what he does. He's a really good communicator and the way that he expressed kind of what the, um, the job entailed, it became more and more appealing and more importantly, what they were doing in Kansas city at the time. And they were going through a pretty big rebuild. Uh, Dayton Moore had just gotten over there. So the more we talked, the more intriguing it became. And then it just happened pretty quickly after that. Uh, we were in the middle of our fall season at Winthrop. I flew out to Kansas City, interviewed for a day, flew back. And then the next week they were doing a uh, scout school in Arizona with just Kansas City uh, Royals guys. So they Major League Baseball does its own scout school, but the Royals had their own that they um, were putting on for like 15, 20 guys. And that was going to be part of the interview process as well. So I flew out there. It was a week long, but I only stayed for about a half of the week because I didn't want to leave uh, Winthrop in the lurch by not being there for a full week of practice. So I ended up being out there for about three days, maybe four at the most. And at the end of it, sat down with JJ and he offered me the job uh, at that point. And I jumped on it like immediately because of just what I had learned in that short amount of time and, and the relationship that I had with, with JJ, it was just like the easiest decision I think I've ever been um, forced to make. And uh, definitely 
love the fact that I made that decision, was able to, to jump on board. So I flew back from Arizona, landed in Charlotte, drove to where I was living, packed up my car, and then turned around. And I uh, started driving home back to Jersey because I was going to cover the Mid-Atlantic at that time. And it's funny how you remember certain details of all that. I remember landing in Charlotte, getting in my car, having half a tank of gas, and it was in the middle of like a gas shortage down there. So I was panicked that I wasn't going to be able to drive and get to where I needed to be on a full tank of gas. And I called my brother-in-law and he was like literally searching and Google searching gas stations along 77 and 85 to make sure that I could find some place. I think it was like just north of Charlotte. I finally found a gas station that had gas. I could fill my tank up and drove the rest of the way home and showed up on my parents' front door. I had to move back home for a year. So I figured out what I was doing <laughs> from a living standpoint. And uh, again, haven't looked back and haven't didn't regret that decision one bit. And it was one of the easiest things I've ever done. And uh, again, impacted my career moving forward in ways that I can't, um, can't describe and how thankful I am that it happened. So I think people understand the concept of scouting, but at the major league level, kind of break it down. There are scouts that strictly are kind of advanced scouts that will go out and give reports on teams that, you know, the Royals would face that year, you know, and then there are scouts that are strictly just looking at the amateur pool, you know, kind of, do they ever cross-pollinate? Like, you know, if you're handling advanced scouting, do you also get a handful of prospects? They say, hey, can you go down to these high school games, college games? Kind of how does it work? Sure. So it's really broken down into three departments. You have your amateur scouting department, you have your professional scouting department, and then your international uh, scouting department. And some uh, organizations do it differently. Some of them kind of cross paths a lot more regularly in the uh, Royal system. We were pretty much had those three distinct areas. And we did, uh, like I said, cross-pollinate a little bit. So for me, I was in, on the amateur side. So my entire focus was for the draft and uh, watching college baseball, junior college and high school baseball, trying to line guys up and figure out who's going to be in that year's draft and who's going to be the best fit um, to be a Royal. So then the professional side of things, there was a little bit of both of what you said. There is your advanced scouts, which obviously has transitioned a little bit more to the video. Not a ton of organizations have guys that physically uh, fly around from stadium to stadium watching those um, uh, those teams to be able to prepare the big league club uh, to face them. A lot of it, like I said, done by video. But the other side of that is the watching a lot of the minor league players and, and big league players from other organizations. So you prepare for trades, you prepare, prepare for free agent acquisitions, um, things like that. So for me, when I was on the amateur side in the summertime, we would always cross over and we would have pro coverage. So they would give us anywhere from three to six minor league teams to go out and uh, and cover. And ironically for me, when I was living in the Carolinas, I always had the Appy League. I had four teams uh, on the West in the Appy that I would sit and cover for like 12 uh, to 14 days straight and, and bounce around those minor league parks. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty much the general, just how most clubs are broken down with those three departments. Um, and you will, you'll have some pro scouts that'll run out and see some guys in the amateur side for that year's draft. You may see some guys jump over and do some international stuff. Uh, here and there, but for the bulk of it, and especially for like the area scouts, we spend the majority of our time watching guys for that amateur draft and in the summertime crossing over and doing some of that pro coverage. And if you're lucky enough, um, you get to get sent out in the playoff run, you know, late in September to go do some advanced scouting and help out uh, to prepare for the playoffs, um, which when we were in the playoffs, we had a, enough pro guys and we had some other guys to be able to do it. So I wasn't lucky enough to be able to uh, 
to get one of those assignments, um, but you had to kind of make up with it with your regular big league coverage. We get one big league team every year. And for me, I always had the Phillies. It seemed like even when I was living down South, I'd come back and be home for five, six days to be able to go sit in Citizens Bank Park and um, hang out in the press box and see good people like yourself up there and, um, you know, watch those, those games for five days and kind of, it really helps sharpen your tools too, because everything you do from an amateur perspective, you're trying to envision guys of what they're going to look like in the big leagues. Um, so when you get through the summer and you get through uh, all those different events and you're able to sit down and watch what they really look like on a big league field, it really starts to kind of give you that ability to refocus and see, okay, this is what I'm looking for when I go back out. Because obviously when you're seeing a bunch of 18 year olds or 20 year olds, your, your mindset can shift a little bit to what you're looking at and you pick out the best player on the field but is he the best player to move forward and actually make an impact from a uh, professional standpoint? So it really helps to kind of get that um, refocus and, and be able to, you know, allow yourself to, to remember, remind yourself what you're looking for on a day-to-day basis. I'm curious when you're looking at young players, what is the, is there a position that is the hardest to project? Is there one position that, just because of the skill set necessary, what it takes to succeed, it's the hardest to project who will be good and who won't be? Yeah, I think hitters. Uh, not so much positions, but just who's going to hit in the big leagues and who's who's not. To me, that is the hardest thing to do by far because you're taking a kid who's 18 years old in high school and saying in four years from now he's going to be in the big leagues facing the best pitchers on the earth. And there's not, it's not a science to like predict – who's going to be able to overcome certain things, who's going to be able to make adjustments, who's going to be able to you know, recognize breaking balls at that level, all those things that go into figuring out if a guy can hit or not, to me is by far the hardest thing to do from a scouting perspective. Um, pitching, obviously, you have a radar gun in front of you that kind of can steer the ship a little bit. Even defensively, you can kind of see some things athletically. You can see how guys move and get to certain balls and what their arm strength looks like. But even from a track record standpoint, guys that have hit their entire life, things just change when they get to the professional level Um, in both ways. Mostly guys don't go forward. If a guy was a career 280 hitter in college, I mean, it's once in a blue moon, all of a sudden that guy goes into professional baseball and becomes a better hitter at the upper levels than he was when he was uh, younger and playing at the amateur level. So usually in reverse, guys that have had a ton of success as amateurs, whether it's high school, college baseball, doesn't mean they're going to translate to success at the next level. So figuring out those guys to me was always the hardest and always the things that we would revisit every year. Of, okay. Why does this guy hit? Why did this guy, you know, get to the big leagues and is having success when you didn't think he was going to, um, or, or vice versa. Why isn't this guy having success? Why is he not doing the things that you thought he was going to do as an amateur? Um, so to me, that's by far the hardest thing to do is predict who's going to hit in the big leagues um, and, and figure out the right ones to take in the draft. And uh, yeah, I think positionally, if catching for me was always a little bit my kind of weak spot, just who was going to be a really good defensive catcher, just because I was so far removed from it as, as an outfielder uh, and coaching that position. But again, from a scouting perspective, you can do that a lot easier than figuring out who's going to hit in the big leagues. I'm curious because as a scout, you're kind of doing all this prep work for an organization you're kind of setting this foundation. What's the satisfying part for you? Is it when a kid you push for gets drafted or when a kid that you push for makes his major league debut? Like what, from a scouting standpoint, what is kind of really the payoff for you? Yeah, I think it's 
definitely the, the pinnacle of that is getting a guy to the big leagues. Um, it's just initially just getting somebody there that has a chance to um, live out his dream. Um, so I think that becomes the pinnacle, but it works backwards from there. Like you spend so much time building relationships with these players and fighting for them at certain times and trying to draft the right guys that there's kids that you've been able to really root for and pull for. And then when we just draft them, that alone is becomes a really satisfying moment because you know how big of it it is and how big of a deal is to that player and to his family. So I think that's kind of like one of the first steps um, and where it starts. And then just any success that he has moving forward. I mean, I follow all of my guys, even to this day, I follow guys that are still in the system and still what they're doing. And I don't care if I look up in the middle of July and that guy went three for five, there's satisfaction to it. Um, if they, that team that he's on has success and they win a championship at the minor league level, you find satisfaction of that. Um, and then obviously the, the biggest moment is when those guys get caught up to the big leagues. Um, and then if you're fortunate enough to have a guy that's successful in the big leagues, uh, for me, Whit Merrifield is a guy that I signed at the University of South Carolina. And just even that guy, I'm watching him, that guy's had success all over the place. And we drafted him that year in 2010. He hits a walk-off single to win the College World Series against UCLA. I was in my hotel room, like, and I think I was in Winston-Salem watching that game, like cheering for that kid because I know how awesome it was and how big of a moment it was. And then every success that he had thereafter was against something that I followed. And then when he came up, uh, I forget the year, I'm drawing a complete blank on what year it was, 2016. And uh, just living and dying with every at-bat that he had in those first you know, a few months and um, you just find successes and, and find satisfaction all over the place. And then when he goes out and does what he's done um, and been able to lead the big leagues and hits and uh, lead the big leagues and stolen bases, be a two-time all-star, you don't lose any satisfaction at all. You continue to just find other moments to have those, have those moments. And for me, I think the biggest thing too, is if that guy gets a chance to win a championship, um, that will probably be the, um, the greatest moment I'd say in my, my scouting career for that guy, for, for that individual player. Um, but yeah, you kind of find them all over the place. And like I said, it starts with the draft. It's amazing too. the opposite. When you spend time building relationships with players and then another team drafts them, you have to turn the page, like pretty much in that moment, like it's done, it's over with, you move on to the next guy and you have to focus because you're in the middle of the draft and everything is such a living organism that you have to just follow up on the next guy. You're sometimes mad and disappointed that you didn't get a certain guy or somebody, you know, another team stole them around before you guys were set to take them, that kind of stuff. So there is some of those frustrations, but then it quickly goes away when you sign the next kid. Um, and it's funny. I just actually got a message from a kid that I signed Cherokee high school graduate went to Rowan um, Gloucester or I forget the name of it. Gloucester County college. We drafted them out of there. Um, ton of, like, I just love the fact that follow that kid because I think he's got a huge ceiling and when you can still stay in touch with that kid and that family, it makes it even uh, more special for you. We need to take another break on one-on-one more with Casey Fay right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest is Casey Fay, director of baseball development for the Appalachian league. Casey also spent a long time as a scout with the Kansas city Royals. He's a Gloucester Catholic and Delaware product. I'm curious from a scout standpoint, the rise of analytics, how has it affected scouting? Is it dependent on the organization you're working for and how much weight? Because, I mean, everybody uses a a, a, a certain amount of analytics or bases so much on on numbers. Uh, but during your time as a scout, did you notice a change where 
you know, all of a sudden maybe there was more focus on kind of breaking down numbers and less on the eye test or, you know, kind of as someone who was in the middle of it, you know, what did you see? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I was there at the beginning when it just started to kind of take hold and I saw a full transition with it. So when I first came in 2009 was my first draft technology now became the new thing. Like guys were using computers really for the first time. In some cases, guys were using, uh, uh, GPS systems instead of having to, you know, print out directions on MapQuest or, you know, using a cell phone to be able to text message it and get emails to your phone. So I was in the beginning of that transition as well. And then the analytics really didn't start to make headway yet. And then when they did, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the actual year when they really started to kind of take hold, it was again, another slow transition for some teams. Some teams jumped right into it and made a full switch to analytics and really putting a lot more emphasis on that. than, like you said, the eye test and other teams were a little bit more slower to uh, transition and not saying anything positively or negative about one or the other. Every team obviously has their own philosophical ideas on how to do it. So for me with the Royals, not to say that we were slow to do it. We we did use it and we did make an impact or have it use it as an impact for us. But we did a lot of research and figuring out what the best models were to use and how to implement them. Um, so for other organizations, they would integrate them completely. Like your eye test and your analytical data was going to be merged together like right out of the gate. With us in Kansas City, we almost kept those two things separate on purpose. We had an analytical department that would break down numbers and give us a lot of those backgrounds and that information. Um, but we would keep it separate to what the um, what you were seeing from a scouting perspective because they didn't want it to influence our judgment, right? They wanted us to go to the ballpark, watch the player, do what we're paid to do, evaluate what we're seeing on the field, put it into a report. And then towards the end, we'll start to merge those two things together to make the best decision uh, from a club's perspective. So to me, that was the easiest because I didn't have to completely retool what I was doing and figure out how to look, look at things through an analytical lens. I could just go to what I'd always naturally done. And for a lot of us had naturally done was just go watch players, evaluate their skill sets, break those down, figure out how that's going to fit in the draft, how it's going to fit in the big leagues. And then when the two sides match up and when you're saying this guy is going to be this in the big leagues and the analytics say his track record says that he's going to be this in the big leagues, that's the easiest decision, right? But they don't always match up that way. And you kind of have to have those conversations and figure out, okay, which side are we leaning towards? What makes the most sense? And it becomes a a much more in-depth and detailed process of getting to that point. Like I said, to just make the right decision uh, for the ball club and make the right decision of of who's going to be the best fit in your system. You mentioned Whit Merrifield. You know, when you think of your kind of the same question I asked you about at Delaware, when you think of your time as a scout with the Royals, what you know, what, what is your top memory or, you know, the, the top feeling you had? Definitely winning the world series um, without a doubt. And again, selfishly from my perspective with Maryfield getting called up and watching his first at bat and his first hit off David price uh, in his first at bat personally or selfishly, that was probably one of the more exciting moments, but by far, by and large, winning a world series. Um, I was there in New York, um, for game five when that happened, I still vividly remember like every moment of how it transpired. Uh, and there was nothing that could take away from the feeling that I had or will take away from that, that memory of winning that world series and, uh, 
and again, from a scouting perspective, you're not even on the field. Like you're, you're not impacting the game. Obviously you become more of a bystander and, and you're just watching and rooting like any other normal fan. But when you talk about living and dying with every pitch, like going through the playoffs and watching every single pitch and literally living and dying with every single thing that happens on the field. And then it's like, when it comes to that, that moment, when you know the game's over and you've won, it's that dual feeling of total excitement and total relief because it is incredibly stressful, especially when, like I said, you're as a fan and you're, you're not impacting the game. You're not playing, you're not coaching. You don't have your finger on different moments that are going on. So you just have to kind of sit back and watch. It is an incredible feeling of excitement and relief at the same time. How much of a grind is scouting? Give people an idea. How much are you on the road? Um, you know, how many hotel points, airline points are you, are you ringing up? Uh, you know, how much, how much are you away from home and out on the road? Yeah, it is. It is a grind. You know, I'd hate to say it cause I know there's a lot of different jobs out there. Everybody that, that works, it's, it's a difficult job. It's a difficult life. Um, and scouting is difficult, but I can't sit here and, and complain about it or make it sound like it's such a bad thing. and such a grind because at the end of the day, we're getting a chance to go to the ballpark and, and watch baseball, but physically and mentally, emotionally, it is a grind. Um, typically you're, you're in hotels anywhere from 150 to 170 nights a year, uh, driving, anywhere from 40 to 50,000 miles uh, a year um, bouncing around to different ballparks. And obviously anybody who's a baseball fan knows it's not the quickest and and easiest game to watch sometimes. Uh, So sometimes that becomes a grind, just watching the game itself, focusing on certain players or, you know, sitting around at a ballpark waiting for a reliever to come in. Uh, Sometimes it's that physically it's a grind uh, in that way. So yeah, thankfully, I've uh, been a Marriott member for a long time and then got a ton of Marriott points to be able to make it worthwhile there. Big Delta flyer. So I have a lot of Delta miles and, and status so that makes it a little bit easier uh, to, to live with. But yeah, you have to love driving, love staying in hotels, love eating it out at restaurants, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, and you really have to have a support system from a family standpoint that that gets it and understands it. And can, and can adapt to it, uh, which for me, thankfully, my fiance Jen, uh, has been incredibly understanding and been great with understanding that lifestyle that I lived for a long time and, and kind of being nimble herself to be able to work around it and do the different things uh, from a family perspective that sometimes, you know, missing weddings and, and missing uh, birthdays and family events uh, is when they're understanding, it makes it a lot easier. So physically, it takes a toll that way. Mentally, emotionally, the Biggest thing that it is people don't realize how taxing it is because you're wrong all the like constantly. You're wrong like 80% of the time. You look at players and you watch, you know, 60, 70. Well, you probably watch close to 150, 200 players that really focus in on you kind of whittle that down to somewhere in the range of 60 to 70 guys that you're turning in for the draft. Those 60 and 70 guys aren't getting to the big leagues. Um, you're probably looking at a list of about 10 to 15, you know, somewhere in the 20% range that are getting to the big leagues every year out of the draft class. So you constantly have to deal with that failure and knowing that you said this is going to happen. I'm looking at this guy. This guy's going to be a big leaguer. We should take this guy in the third round, fourth round. And then you look up three years and he's not. And he's, you know, maxed out at, you know, high A or, or double A. And he's having some struggles. And you look back and you you were convinced that that guy was going to be a big leaguer. Um, so it does take its toll a little bit uh, in that regard because you still have to you know, be savvy enough to look at it and understand your failings and then adjust to them and be able to 
not let it affect what's going to happen the next year and, and the next year and the next year when you're looking at other guys. You learn from it. You figure out how to apply it to some of the, the players kind of moving forward. Um, but, yeah, you spend a lot of time convincing a lot of people to spend money and to do a lot of things because you believe in this player and you're wrong. Um, so that becomes becomes tough. And then, obviously, when you do sign a guy and you feel like he still has a chance to get to the big leagues and he gets released and it affects his life, um, it starts to, to take its toll on you. Uh, as well. So again, not trying to complain about it, not trying to compare it to other people's livelihoods and what they do, uh, but it is a grind. Um, and people will tell me lots of times, oh man, your job's awesome. I wish I had, wish I had that job. And and I'm, I'm not going to discount that, but at the same time, you know, I love, you know, off days, just like the next person. When that game's over, I'm sprinting to my car and getting in and driving as fast as I can to the hotel, just like the next person, uh, because you kind of need that that time to regroup and you know that your day is going to be pretty much the same thereafter. You're going to get up in the morning. You're probably going to drive for three hours, watch a three-hour game, get back in the car, drive two hours to the next spot, sit on the computer for a couple hours, uh, make some phone calls and figure it all out, and then get up and do it all over again from you know the end of January all the way through until the draft. And then it just restarts after that and just a different, different schedule. So, again, certainly not complaining about it, certainly not trying to compare it to other people's livelihoods and, and what everybody has to deal with. Um, but yeah, it can be a, a physical and, and mental grind for sure. Final question. If I would have talked to you when you were 18, 19 and told you the road you'd take, would you be surprised? Ooh, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I'm going to give you a good answer. Uh, so yeah, when I look back on when I was 18 years old, of course, like I said, I was self-aware, but you do feel like you're going to play forever. Um, I did have that feeling that I was going to be involved in sports one way or another. And the fact that it's led me to where it has, um, yeah, I, I can't say that I'm completely surprised. I am incredibly satisfied. Um, I wouldn't trade anything uh, for it in the world, but I was um, lucky enough when I kind of look back on it, that I was attached and around some really good people that kind of helped me throughout my career and helped me get to a position to where I'm at now, um, which number one, yeah, I was very fortunate to be around some people, but I'm going to go ahead and take some credit for that as well. Cause I gravitated towards the right people. I felt like, I felt like I always found the people that shared some of my same values, some of my work ethic, uh, things that I believed in. And that's who I gravitated towards, which helped me kind of shape things moving forward. So when I look back on it, that hasn't changed from the time that I was 18. I've always been incredibly competitive, always had really good work ethic. And I just happened to, you know, be blessed with a family that I was, that was kind of built the same way and then continue to surround myself with people with those similar values. So I, I can't say that I'm all that surprised. I, I would say the success with, you know, winning a world series and, you know, being around guys like with Maryfield and being around some of the people that I am, there's kind of that, pinch yourself moments where you realize this is your reality. Um, but yeah, I think total surprise, I wouldn't say, uh, just because uh, kind of where my mindset was and where my focus was from a young age to, to where I'm at now hasn't changed a whole lot. Casey Fay, this was fun. Thanks so much, buddy. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on, man. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Casey Fay for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, want to help us out, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.